All right, friends, let's gather together. If you didn't see it, there are two handouts for you. And so if you are seated but handoutless, unless handouts ain't your thing, that's okay too. But uh, uh, something to help you follow along. Um, all right. People will be trickling in, uh, but we actually do have to scoot out of here at noon. So we're going to make sure that we are rolling along and able to cover everything we want to. Uh, but hey, good morning and welcome uh, to this wonderful opportunity this morning. By the way, my name is Duke. I am the one of the pastors at Grace Meridian Hill. For those of you that may not know me, since I'm not normally the person standing up front here in this space, um, but welcome. We are excited to uh, welcome you to Redeeming Vision, a special lecture event with Dr. Alyssa Weichbrot and hosted by the Grace DC Network. Uh, special thanks to the Grace Mosaic community for hosting this event and especially the various staff members that help pull this together. We're excited to just dive right in, but before I introduce our speaker, just wanted to review briefly what the format of this morning is going to be. Uh, we will have first a uh, about an hour lecture, segment number one, and then a brief break. So just so you know, there will be a brief break. You saw some of the refreshments in the back, and then we'll reconvene for a second shorter segment uh, lecture for about 30 minutes, and then afterwards there will be some Q&A time. So please feel welcome to be remembering or jotting down notes for questions that you might want to ask afterwards, and then we'll wrap up by 12 o'clock, Lord willing. So just to introduce our speaker, uh, a wonderful gift. Dr. Alyssa Yukiko Weichbrot was born and raised in Honolulu, Hawaii, currently lives in Chattanooga with her husband, Noel, and their two sons. She received her PhD in art history and archaeology from Washington University in St. Louis and presently serves as a much-beloved professor of art and art history at Covenant College in Lookout Mountain, Georgia, where she teaches courses, just to give a representative example, such as Introduction to Art History, Art and the Church, Global Modernisms, Women, Art, and Culture, and Race in American Art. Uh, beyond the classroom, she also writes, lectures, and runs an amazing Instagram account. If you don't already follow her, you really ought to. Uh, wonderful content, even through that unique medium. Her first book, Redeeming Vision, A Christian Guide to Looking at and Learning from Art, will be released by Baker Academic Press just in a few weeks' time this month. So please be sure to purchase it and learn from that book resource as well. The back of the book includes a book description, uh, a piece of which I want to read because I think it aptly captures the purpose of today's event. It talks about the idea of learning to allow art and images to positively transform us and how we love, which is a reminder, friends. We're here today, ultimately, to learn to love, loving God and loving our neighbors. On a slightly more personal note, I'm 
excited, so excited for this event. It's in, in a way long in the coming. Um, in my mind, Dr. Weichbrot is one of the best constructive thinkers around the intersection of art, reformed theology, gender, race, politics, pop culture. Just a, a really unique synthesis that she is, that you are able to bring, that I think is dynamic, powerful, and much needed for our time. And so it's an enormous joy and privilege, honor to have her with us, to have you with us. Thank you so much for making time to be here with us. Let's all welcome Dr. Weichbrock together. Thank you. Um, thank you for the introduction. Thank you to the Grace DC Churches for having me. This is really exciting for me. Um, and I love seeing some familiar faces in the audience as well. Um, I'm going to open in prayer, but just a warning so that you can sort of wrap your minds around this. This first hour, I want to run like we're in my classroom back at Covenant. So when I ask questions, they're not rhetorical. So you can get into your, like, I'm a student and I'm going to answer questions mindset as we pray. Okay? Let's pray. Father, you are the God who sees. I thank you that you see us. I thank you that you see those who we have ignored, um, that you see those who we see wrongly. Um, and I thank you for your spirit that empowers us, that changes us, that can fill us with love, that allows us to see more as you do. I thank you for the gift of art. Um, I thank you for the way that it reflects something of your um, image bearing in us. Um, I thank you for the ways that it shapes us. And I pray that you would make us open and available and willing to look in ways that are embodied, that are loving, and that are open to transformation. Thank you for the time that you've given us today. In your son's name we pray, amen. Okay. Um, so, as, I, uh, as, as we sort of laid out the, the structure for today, um, this first hour, we're really going to be talking about some of the tools for looking. And then in the second, shorter lecture, um, I want to sort of model for you an application, right? So we're going we're gonna to walk through this together, and then I want to show you where you can maybe go further with it. Um, and a lot, actually none of the objects that I'm one of the objects that I'm talking to you about today um, are, is something that I discuss in more detail in my book, but these principles are all the same, okay? Um, so, the image that I wanna focus on for our first bit, for this, this first sort of um, practice of how to look, is this painting by Eastman Johnson. And I know it's a weird painting, but I have reasons that I chose it that I will tell you about later. Um, and if you're having trouble seeing it, go ahead and do a little Google search on your phone. You can pull it up so that you can see it. You can zoom in on it. Um, but you're looking for Eastman Johnson's. Um, you can either look up Old Kentucky Home or Negro Life at the South, sort of known by either of those names. So Eastman Johnson, Negro Life at the South, if you want to have it on your phone so you can see it more easily. And I want to use this artwork to help us think about and practice how Christians should look at art. Um, and before we can sort of jump into the, the practicals, um, it is important to begin by thinking about why Christians should look at art. 
And there are lots of reasons, um, but I'm only going to quickly go through three. So first, art is a reflection of our image bearing. Um, we are made in the image of a creator god, and so human creations are an echo of our first creator. Okay, so that's, that's sort of the, the basic why look at art, because it tells, tells us something about our image bearing. Second, and, and to me even more potently, art is a means of conveying meaning through material things, through paint, through marble, through chemicals, and even pixels. And, and that idea that something material can communicate something more than the material should actually be really familiar to us as Christians because we believe in the sacraments, right? We believe that these sacraments that God has given to us convey grace, convey knowledge to us through our whole bodies, not just through propositions and texts, but God who made us, God who knows us, gives us something material to do, something to eat, some water to pour over heads, something to bear witness to physically, and that, that through those actions, through those material things, we come to know something more of him and of his love for us. So I want to be clear that art is not a sacrament. I'm not proposing, <laughs> don't report me to General Assembly, art is not a sacrament. Um, but I do think that the sacraments remind us of why art is essential for embodied souls like us. Art and sacraments matter because of the incarnation, right? When the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, it wasn't just a quick visit for the purpose of securing atonement, right? Instead, Jesus submitted to time and place and culture, and he gave dignity to our creatureliness, to our finitude, to the stuff of our everyday lives. And so third... Another reason why Christians should care about art, should look at art, is because we're already being shaped by it. Art and images are already shaping us. Images that we see teach us what to expect in our world. They teach us what joy, what sorrow, what respectability, what heroism, what beauty look like. And they also teach us the opposite. They teach us who it's okay to ignore who we can make fun of, who we can revile without getting um, pushback. Now, images have a lot of power because they don't just form our ideas, they form our loves, right? There's something really fundamental about how they are shaping us. And so sometimes in reformed circles, we spend so much time talking about the why, we spend so much time talking about the theoretical, that we forget about the very practical question of how we should do it. So I could talk a lot more about these three things, about the why for looking at art. I can give you some great books that can walk you through it in more detail. Um, but what has been missing in, I think, our Reformed conversation thus far is a real practical guide for how to actually do it. So you might, I hope that you're convinced, since you're here on a Saturday morning, you guys are like amazing and awesome um, and bizarre, probably. Um, so you're convinced that you should care, and now I want to help us think about how we should care. So the how and the why, for me, are really intertwined. And so for the rest of this first session, I want to give you practical steps for looking at artworks, but I also want to connect those steps to these three commitments. As Christians who have been 
transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. We have the capacity to be generative in this world. We're not just called to be um, folks who are analyzing, folks who are breaking things down, who are being critical. We also have the capacity to make something new, right? We don't need to simply consume images. We don't need to simply wait around for an image to kind of stir something up in us. But because we operate from a place of abundance as beloved children of God who believe in the coming restoration of the world, I really think that our gaze can open up something new. So we need redeeming vision that is embodied, that's loving, and that is transforming. So throughout the rest of our time today, I want to be sort of weaving those three commitments into our how. Okay. So because we believe in a God who made the world and called it good, and because we believe that he will restore this creation and our bodies, our redeeming vision needs to take embodiment and needs to take materiality seriously. We can't just care about what an artwork means. We need to pay attention to what it actually is. We need to pay attention to it as a thing. And so in art history, in my discipline, we call this practice visual analysis, okay? Um, if you wanna analyze something, you're breaking it down into smaller parts so that you can understand how it works, right? We better understand how a bicycle works or how a flower is pollinated by identifying specific parts and then understanding how those things fit together to, to do something. And so we can do the same thing with art. We can do the same thing with this painting. So we're gonna now work our way through a visual analysis of Eastman Johnson's Negro Life at the South. And one of your handouts is a double-sided one that says visual analysis on one side, and I think it says um, something about interpretation on the, on the other side. Um, so we're gonna, you, you can write on your handout, you can keep it clean to use it later, um, but this is what we're gonna kind of be working off of. So we can start with the basics here. Um, what are we looking at? Well, like I'm showing you a projection, I'm showing you a digital image on the screen. So we also need to use our imaginations a little bit to think about this as a thing. Um, one thing that I like to do, one thing that I encourage my students to do is, is when you can't go and see the thing in person, can you find an image that helps you better understand how it takes up space, right? So here's a photograph of this painting in a gallery. So you can kind of get a sense of how big it is. Um, it's a little less than four feet across, a little more than three feet tall. So it's a, a fairly sizable painting, but not massive, right? Um, and it is a, an oil painting on canvas. So if you looked up close to it, and you maybe even zoom in, depending on which resolution you found, you can see some little brush strokes. So it's definitely a made thing. Um, and we would also say that this is a, um, oh wait, actually I should ask this as a question. Is this a representational or a non-representational painting? It's representational, good. So it's representational simply because we look at it and we recognize what, we recognize a subject, right? So we're, we're, we're seeing something that is akin to what we see in the world around us. That's all we mean by saying that a painting or an artwork is representational, is that there is recognizable subject matter in it. If you were looking at, we'll talk about a painting in our, in our second section that is non-representational, it's just color and form and shape on a canvas, and that'd be a non-representational artwork, okay? So, with that sort of um, 
out of the way. I want to now think about some of the building blocks of all artworks. And to be fair, these building blocks, these sort of ingredients that I'm showing you here on the screen that are on your chart, um, th these are traditional ones that our historians have used. We could have broken this down in other ways. There's nothing magical. There's nothing sort of essential or platonic um, about these elements that I'm, I'm, I'm calling out here or about those principles. But they provide sort of a useful way for um, identifying the pieces of an artwork. One way that I think about this sometimes is that we're looking at an ingredient list. Um, that's your, your formal elements are your ingredients. So line, shape, form, color, value, space, and texture. Those are your ingredients for an artwork. And then the principles are how things are put together. So the principles you can think of as maybe being like a kind of flavor profile when you're cooking, right? Um, so I, I love cooking. I use a lot of garlic when I cook. Um, and depending on, um, and it's sort of interesting, right? Because I can use a lot of the same ingredients. I can use garlic and onion and oil to start off with but I might end up going in the direction of Japanese cooking, or I might end up going in the direction of Italian cooking. I might have a different sort of principle at work, even though my ingredients stay the same. So just that, that's what we're thinking about when we're looking at visual things, okay? So this is where you guys are gonna start helping me here. <laughs> um, you can, when I look at an artwork, I think about this little chart with the formal elements on one side, the ingredients on one side, and the principles on the other. And I try to think about how they connect to each other. How are, what, what is a formal element that stands out to me? And what is it doing? How could I draw an arrow from something on the left-hand side to the right-hand side? Other times, I might start on the right-hand side. I might start from the, the side of principles and say, ooh, this looks like a painting that has a lot of contrast in it. What is creating that contrast? So you can really start on either side of those two lists. So when you're, as, you, as you've been looking at this on the screen, on your phones, somebody tell me, what is a, an element or a principle that first jumps out at you? And we'll just go from there. You can raise your hand. Jonathan. Okay, so line stands out to you. And what is line doing? Mm -hmm. Okay, good. So you're thinking about how line is sort of dividing up this composition. Can you guys see that? I would dance over to this screen and point it at you. <laughs> we have the line of that roof that's cutting the, the painting in half horizontally, and then we have the line of that vertical tree that's sort of cutting it up um, uh, vertically, right? So quadrants, but not equal quadrants. Um, so we might think about how the line is um, creating Maybe that's part of, how, do you see how the line is also creating some contrast? That things that are to the right of the tree are a little, look a little different than things that are to the left of the tree, right? This is not accidental. It's not as if Eastman Johnson was just happens to put a tree <laughs> um, and, and paint things differently on one side and the other. That's, a, that's a, a purposeful choice that he makes as an artist. Okay, good. What are some other elements or principles that stand out to you, or another way that you see line at work here. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay, good. So you're seeing a shape, right? Um, and and sh so some, some of these um, formal elements, they can feel a little mushy, like what is it, are we really talking about line? Are we talking about shape here? We can talk about both at the same time. That's the great thing about art. Um, so we have this shape. Would you say that the that shape of the triangle sort of helps create some movement, that we're kind of moving between those figures as we go through? Do you guys see that? Um, This is not quite a triangle, but if you follow the gazes of where everybody is looking in that painting, they sort of create this implied line that moves you around the painting as a whole. Just kind of making sure that you're, you're picking up on every single person, every single figure that's in there. Right, does that make sense? Okay, good. What else? Yeah, good, good. So we have value, so va when we're talking about value, we're talking about lightness and darkness. Um, and oftentimes our eyes are gonna be drawn to places of really high contrast, to places where there's a, something that's light and bright surrounded by something that's darker. Um, and so we're drawn to this male figure on the left-hand side who's wearing a bright white shirt, and then that's balanced on the right-hand side by this, um, by this white woman who's entering into the scene who's also wearing a lighter dress. So that's creating balance. And it might also we might also think about it as creating contrast, right? So that we have a black man and he's sort of being contrasted against this, against this white woman on the right-hand side. You guys are doing so good. Anything else that stands out to you? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, if you, I think about that as, as line, also texture. Uh, there's a lot, there's some glare. I don't know that you're gonna see this. Zoom in on your phones. If you look at the top half of the painting and compare the left-hand side to the right-hand side, the, there's a lot of, um, there's a different kind of texture on the left than there is on the right, and a different kind of line, where the lines on the left-hand side tend to be more organic, they're a little bit more droopy, they're a little bit looser, and then on the right, we have these lines that are, um, uh, lines that are more rigid and more precise, and textures that are a lot cleaner. There's not the same kind of proliferation of moss, for example, on the right-hand side as there is on the left. So again, we have another example of contrast, right? This contrast being set up between the left-hand side and the right-hand side. Good. Anything else? Yeah. Mm -hmm. What about the color? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I see we can see how color is providing some unity here, right? So there's that green that sort of unifies the painting as a whole. That can be really hard when you have a lot of different little figures in a painting to try to bring everything together. And so color is a way that Eastman Johnson is unifying the painting. And you can even trace something like that um, warm red-orange color that's in the, the dress of a woman in the background. It's on like a handkerchief 
for the seated woman in the foreground. It's the skirt of the young woman who's talking to this young man. It's the kerchief of the woman who's peeking out of the window. That same like warm red orange is also repeated throughout, right? So that's kind of, again, creating unity, creating movement. It's helping us, it's kind of giving us a little path for our eyes to follow to make sure that we're seeing everybody. Mm -hmm. Good, anything else? I think you I think you hit on a lot of it. Mm -hmm. Pardon? Space? What about the space? Mm hmm Mm-hmm. 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 So we have so when we're thinking about space, we can think about both the sort of visual real estate that something takes up, and we can think about the depicted space. So if we're thinking about depicted space, the illusion of deep space here. We have the foreground, which is where all of the figures are clustered, and then we have this sort of secondary character almost of the architecture that's a little bit in the background, right? So there are these two sort of planes of space at work. But when we think about the, the visual real estate, the visual weight um, space that something is taking up. Um, then you also have, well, you, you have the, we, we know what we're supposed to pay attention to. We know where emphasis is because these figures are the things that take up a lot of space. But you know what's also really interesting? You maybe want to zoom in on the woman, the white woman on the right-hand side. Do you see how she... Again, with the light, zoom in. But the woman on the right-hand side, do you see how she is framed by that doorway? So she kind of gets cordoned off in her own space. Another way that contrast is being created between the right-hand side of the painting and the left-hand side of the painting. Isn't that interesting? So like when we look at this initially, we might be um, intrigued by like, what's the story that's being told? Or like, I wonder what the artist was thinking about, something like that. And what I really think is so important, what I really wanna encourage us to do, is before we jump to meaning, to actually pay attention to the thing, right? To pay attention to the formal elements and how is our direction being, um, being directed? What are we being told visually to pay attention to? Um, so, so paying attention to the fact that there is this um, contrast that's set up in all of these different ways, that gives us a, a path to sort of pursue forward when we want to think about meaning. But it's really important that we start with the image itself, with the object itself. Questions about that so far? Does that make sense? This is often really hard for my, my students who are in here from before know that it's hard to do um, because we are so, we're, we're trained, um, well, we're not, we're not trained, we're catechized by the internet um, into judging pictures really quickly. So when you, most often when you are looking at an image, you have the option to heart it, right? Or to thumbs up it, or to decide if you're gonna scroll right or scroll left. Like there's all of these ways that we're given to skip straight to judgment and to meaning with an image and not actually spend time with it. Um, and and uh, sociologists have done some great studies 
and even when we go to art museums, we're ostensibly, we are there for the purpose of looking at art, that people don't actually look at the art for very long. Um, I think the, the Mona Lisa, the most one of the most famous paintings in the world, folks look at it for an average of 30 seconds, right? Um, and then they spend two minutes reading the little book, <laughs> and then probably another two minutes taking photos with their iPad. So we're not, we're, we're not good at slowing down and looking, but there's so much there for us to see. So that's, that's what we want to start with. Okay. Now, we could just stop there. There is a sort of um, a, a practice of visio divina or divine vision um, as, as a, a meditative practice for Christians where we spend time looking closely at an image and then we just sit with it. And we sort of think, okay, spirit, like, let me know what you want me to pay attention to, what is this bringing to mind, and we can just sort of um, be attentive to, to what comes to the surface for us. That is a way of engaging with an image. But I'm going to keep going a little further because that's what I do. Um, and now, beyond just looking closely, I want to ask us to look curiously. Right? So we've looked closely, now let's look curiously. Let's ask more questions um, to see what we can learn about and from this artwork. How is this artwork making meaning? What is this artwork saying? Um, what is it doing? We might have been taught that the artwork's meaning is locked up inside of the object itself, and that if you can just get some sort of special key, that you can like unlock the artwork and you can see, oh, there's the meaning in the little box. Um, but, and, and then and once we have the meaning that we can judge whether something is good or bad. But here's the thing, here's the problem with that. Our commitment to embodied looking means that we have to take actually three things seriously. We need to take the artwork seriously, which is what we just did, thinking about it as an object. We need to take the artist seriously, and oftentimes that's where we jump to, like, oh, I wonder what the artist was thinking when he or she made this. But we also have to take ourselves seriously, the viewer. All three of those are important. And I like to think about this as a sort of triangle of interpretation. And here's why we have to take ourselves seriously. Because we are not a floating eye. Right? We are not an eyeball that's just on a stick or out in space that doesn't have a history, that doesn't have a body, that doesn't have a set of memories or th of things that we've seen before. We are bound to time and place, and God made us bound to time and place, and he calls that good. So our goal here isn't to transcend ourselves in order to look at an artwork, but to sort of recognize what we ourselves are bringing with us to an artwork. Um, acknowledging our finitude and our embodiment when we're looking at art means that we pay attention to what we bring. And so one way that I like to think about this is, um, I call it our visual archive, that all of us have, a, if you're older, a filing cabinet, if you're younger, an algorithm <laughs> in your head. And I'm like right on that edge, so I have both a filing cabinet and an algorithm. Okay, and this is on the, the back side of that handout with visual analysis. I have, have some questions about our archive. Our archive are all of the images that we have seen before and that we've sort of sorted um, into these different categories that help us make sense of new things that we see, right? So if you think about um, a, a, a photograph of a sports team that is celebrating winning a championship, 
um, I can sort of guarantee that there's going to be a lot of people wearing the same outfit. They're going to be clustered around a large trophy or cup of some sort, and there's probably going to be confetti in the foreground. And so when I see a photograph that looks like that, I'm putting it into my, my um, folder of this is what victory looks like, right? Now, and that's fine. Like, that's how we operate in the world. But have any of you seen, again, I'm showing my age, but have any of you seen the photograph, maybe from the documentary, of Michael Jordan clutching the trophy and lying on the floor of the locker room after he wins the NBA championship following the death of his father? And he's sobbing, and he's on the ground. And our archive says that's what defeat looks like. But part of what makes that image so powerful is that it's actually what victory looks like, right? So we want to be, we want to acknowledge the ways that our visual archive, the images that we have in our head, might, might, or, or are shaping us and how they can shape us to make sense of our world in a way that is just like good and feasible. But sometimes it can maybe also limit us so that we misunderstand or we miss something that we should see. So that's why being, um, aware of our archive is, is important. So I'm curious, with this painting, is there some way that it activates your archive? Maybe not that you've seen this particular painting before or you know, like a copy of it before, but, but maybe even thinking about some of the, the, how the subject matter, um, does this activate your archive? Tell me. Tell me what is, if you're running through your filing cabinet or your algorithm, what is coming to your head? Mm-hmm. Ooh, interesting. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. No, I love that. that so that, that there's something about um, the image as a whole and maybe these smaller vignettes in here that is reminding you of um, your lived experience, right? That, that you know what a banjo <laughs> sounds like. And not everybody who looks at this painting might actually know that. So there, there is something of your lived experience that you're bringing to this that helps you inhabit it a little bit more fully. Good. What else? What are some other ways that this is maybe activating your archive? I'm thinking some about... Um, well, I, I mean, I live in Chattanooga. I live in the South. Um, I'm teaching a class right now on race and American art. Um, and I, so I think I, I spend a lot of time thinking about how I was raised to think about um, the antebellum South in Hawaii, which we didn't do a great job thinking about the antebellum South in Hawaii. <laughs> so a lot of this has been later. But, like, but genuinely, I think um, I had an idea growing up of a sort of happy slave sort of stereotype, right? That, that it wasn't the greatest, but folks worked it out. And there was, there, was, there was some joy, there was some laughter, there were these family moments. And so for me, there's some ways that this painting fits into an older idea that I have of what, the, what history was like, okay? That, that idea has been changed and in pretty radical ways since, um, but it still exists back there. Like, I still have a category for that in my head. Does that make sense? Okay. What about, what, what else? Is there anything else? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Does it does it maybe fit into an archive that we have of vibrant inner city life? In a weird way. Do you guys see that, right? Like how um, the, just the idea of like dilapidated architecture but vibrant culture. We have those tropes today. We just apply them in sort of a different context. They but this is a, a visual manifestation, a sort of visual history of that kind of idea. Mm-hmm. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. Well, so I'm thinking some about um, like photography for. Um, philanthropy or for like aid projects, particularly in on the continent of Africa, um, not to pick on Matt Damon, but to pick on Matt Damon a little bit. Um, like you, that I that 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 visual of that contrast, right? And and then this white woman sort of coming into the space and observing it, and 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 by implication having something to offer to the dilapidated space on the left, like we've seen that in photographs for foreign aid, right? We've seen that in photographs maybe even for um, why you should invest in this neighborhood or why you should invest in that after school program or something like that. Like there are surprise, I'm, gonna, I'm arguing here that there are surprising ways even beyond the, the sort of overt subject matter here of slavery in the South that our archive that there, there, there are things here that are familiar from our archive, okay? And I want us to sit with that, you know? And, and remember those visual tensions that we just talked about. Do you see how Johnson can be using those visual tensions to suggest some tensions in the content too, right? But it's so important that we started with that visual so that we can recognize where some of those content tensions are, are coming from. So we could also stop here. We could pause. We could reflect on, does my response to the work tell me something important about my expectations for God, myself, or for my neighbor? Does it make it evident how we've been formed by, to imagine what a multicultural church should look like? Does it provide an explanation for your own anxieties about being marginalized as just entertainment or just as a caretaker? Does it inspire gratefulness to God for black love and marriages that have persisted despite systemic attempts to eradicate family structures? And, you know, and just sit with that in your body. Like That would also be a good way to respond to an artwork like this. Sometimes it might be all that you're able to do with an artwork, and there can be something really valuable um, in that, that sort of self-reflection. But today, you have an art historian with you who's unwilling to let it stay right there. And I want to fill out that last part of the triangle, right? So we've talked about the artwork, we've talked about ourselves, now let's talk about the artist and the context in which this thing was made. Um, that commitment to embodiment that we talked about should also extend to the artist's body in time and space. So what else do we need to know about this painting? 
Well, it's good to remember that Eastman Johnson was a real human being. <laughs> he was a, a, a guy. I love this as his self-portrait. I don't know if you can see this, but he's like holding a fancy bottle of wine, sort of cradling it and looking at it lovingly in his self-portrait. <laughs> he's choosing what he wants to, you to know about him. <laughs> um, so the artist, Eastman Johnson, was born in Maine in 1824. He was trained in Boston, and he actually began his career in Washington, D.C., which is one of the reasons why I wanted to use this painting today for you all. He spends some time in Europe, and then he settles in New York City um, for the rest of his career. But this painting, Negro Life at the South, was his first major painting to be exhibited in New York, and it really established his reputation as a leading painter of American life. So for him and his career, this painting is really important. Okay. Um, one thing that's great about looking at paintings that are well-known or artworks that are well-known is that oftentimes we can go back and we can see how they were received in their own time. So some helpful context about this painting is that we can look at original reviews of the show in 1859 that this painting was included in, and we can see what people said about it. So one of the through lines for um, the original reception, the initial reception of this painting, is that people talked a lot about how true, how honest it was. Okay, so quotes from critics are things like, there's a truthfulness of expression. There's a reality of character. There's an honesty of painting. This is a faithful and charming picture. Okay? So that's, that's the initial um, response, is that there's this, this praise for honesty. And I would argue that some of that comes from the fact that this is a really detailed painting. Right? Like if, again, if you have on your phone, you've zoomed in on it, there's a lot of detail that he packs into this. Um, and that, that level of detail, that level of naturalism sort of shapes people, tends to help us believe that this is true in some way, that this is, that he couldn't just be, this is not a fantasy that he's sort of making up, that there's, this is somehow tethered to reality, okay? So that's important for us to know. This was also um, immediately popular. So it gets a lot of press when it's first made, but it's also, it's, it, you know, it's one oil painting. How many people can see one oil painting? Well, this was so popular that not only does Eastman Johnson make a couple more copies of this, so the, the original is in the New York Historical Society, there's a copy that he paints that's in the High Museum in Atlanta, and then he sort of spins off these, like, it's like he's, he's doing Star Wars and he's spinning off these little mini-series, you know, so he has, he has another painting where it's just of the banjo player and the little boy, and then he has another painting where he sort of spins off the couple who's conversing on the left-hand side. And then it's also turned, it's reproduced, it's turned into prints. So you could buy it as a color lithograph. You could see it as, a, um, as an engraving in a popular magazine. You could buy it as a postcard. So it's, it's so popular that it's disseminated really widely. A lot of people are seeing this. So that's also important just for our context, right, to think about how many people are perhaps being formed, how many people this is entering into their visual archive. Now, what I find perhaps most interesting about this painting is the conflicting reception. So a lot of people are praising it for its truthfulness. Everybody sort of agrees on that. But depending on the, the visual um, archive, the, the lived experience, and the political commitments that someone brings to this painting, 
they actually interpreted it really differently from each other, right? So the pro-slavery newspaper, The Herald, describes this painting um, as having all the spirit of Negro life with its eccentricities, its enjoyments, and its poetry. And the idea in this pro-slavery newspaper, or pro-slavery, yeah, pro-slavery newspaper, is that this is showing how enslaved people um, have this sort of vibrant cultural life that, that things are fine for them and that they, they're also perhaps incapable of taking care of themselves. Just look at the state of the house that they're in. Look at all these details that show that they're not very clean, that they're not very good at upkeep. And so how good that they have a, a loving and generous mistress who's coming in to check on them so that they can have these moments of enjoyment and conviviality and eccentricity <laughs> while being cared for by a good mistress. That's one way that this painting is, is interpreted as being pro-slavery in support of slavery. Okay. On the flip side, you have an abolitionist paper that looks at the exact same painting and says, as telling as a chapter from slavery as it is, or compares it as a visual version of Uncle Tom's Cabin. Okay. So uh, an abolitionist looks at this painting and with their lived experience, with their prior commitments, they say, oh, this is showing how bad chattel slavery is. This is showing how enslaved people are living in poor conditions, that they are, they're doing their sort of best under the circumstances, but um, if you compare their state of living to the house on the right-hand side, it's not very good. We need to, they, they need to be free. And then, I love this, Frederick Douglass doesn't, as far as I know, doesn't actually see this painting, um, but all these folks who are talking about the, um, in, in the reception, sort of praising the banjo player and sort of the, the vibrancy of black culture. Frederick Douglass says, slaves sing most when they are most unhappy. And that really flips it, right? So rather than seeing this as an expression of conviviality, as an expression of joy, can this also be an expression of lament? Do you see how important it is to have all three parts of that interpretive triangle at work here? Because it, it makes us see how much the viewer sort of brings to this space, right? That we can sort of radically change how we understand this, depending on some of our prior commitments. Now, Eastman Johnson himself is really silent about these interpretations. To some extent, he seems very happy to just have this be a popular painting, to sell a lot of copies of it, and to make some, to establish his reputation in this way. He doesn't explicitly say, oh, this was a pro-slavery painting, or this was an abolitionist painting. He also doesn't say anything when people start referring to this painting as Old Kentucky Home. So he, he puts it in the show as Negro Life at the South, he doesn't say anything when papers start talking about it almost immediately as um, a scene of slavery from Kentucky. And this is a problem because that's a, that's a lie of omission by Eastman Johnson. Because this painting is not a painting of a southern plantation. This is a painting from Washington, DC. This is why I chose this painting for you all. <laughs> we know where this house was. It's now a taco shop, I suppose, um, <laughs> as far as I can tell. Um, and Eastman is painting urban slavery in Washington, D.C. 
but he allows this more, and, 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 and slavery in Washington, D.C., as I'm sure many of you know, is this really contested issue, right? Um, and it's not until the secession of southern states that um, there, the emancipation is able to pass in the district. So, so even though the slave trade was outlawed earlier, there were still enslaved people, there were still enslaved um, slave owners in the district up until 1862, okay? Um, but Johnson, realizing that this is a bit of a contentious issue, he, he's largely willing, and, and his, perhaps his viewers are also willing to distance this, to distance the existence of chattel slavery from urban centers and to sort of push it off and to say, oh, this fits better with my archive, this fits better with my idea of what the people down there are doing. This fits better with my idea of the South, not what's happening in urban centers. Even though visually everything in here tells us we're looking at an urban center, that's why these houses are so close together to each other, right? Isn't that kind of bizarre that we would so easily say, oh yeah, this is Kentucky. No, no, no. In Kentucky, the slave quarters would be way over here and the plantation house would be up here, right? This is, this is why I think that a painting that on first, at first glance can sort of look either banal or nostalgic or like not that interesting, that if we spend time with it, if we pay attention to its form, if we pay attention to what it activates in us in our archives, if we pay attention to the history of the object and to the artist, and I know not all the time, you're not gonna be able to do that all the time, but if we're able to do that, we can, we can have this, this beautiful, complex, layered object that opens up to us, not just something about art history, but something about ourselves, right? And, and so this is, the, this is the challenge, this is the, the possibility that I, I, I wanna lay out before you today, is that a painting like this, even though it might not be, I, I, I don't, it might not be your favorite painting. I hope it's not your favorite painting. There's better things out there. <laughs> um, but that there can be something really good for us here if we pay attention to the thing, to the artist, the archive, if we look at it from this embodied perspective that we can move in love towards the uncomfortable realities that are depicted in the painting, but perhaps also the things that we find out about ourselves, right? And that we can open ourselves to how the spirit can use a painting to transform us, how it can call attention to something like our own prejudice or our sin or our unwillingness to grapple with a difficult past because we would prefer to keep things we would prefer to keep the status quo um, a little bit more together, please. So for me, teaching art history, I, I want students, I want you to learn about the art, but I'm fundamentally, you know, at the end of the day, most interested in what we can learn from the art, right? How can grappling with this artwork, how can engaging with this artwork help us grow in our love for God? How can it help us grow in our love for our neighbor? Is this an artwork that brings us to confession? Is this an artwork that brings us to you know, gratefulness? Even though the, the function of the artwork might be something to lament, 
is there still evidence in here of, like I said before, that persistence of black joy and making and love that can't, that, that, you know, whatever Eastman Johnson's political commitments were, that he still sort of implicitly recognizes here? Is that something that we can celebrate, right? How does this help us grow in our, does this make us curious? Does this humble us? Does this make us um, interested in finding out more about our neighborhoods, about the places in which we live? What are other places in our life that, like the people who looked at Eastman Johnson's painting, we might try to distance a wrongdoing from ourselves because it's more comfortable to deal with it as a sin that's over there rather than something that's in our own backyard. So many ways that this opens up to us if we are just tender enough to that kind of transformation, right? So before I, I let you go on break, I'm gonna do the awkward teacher thing and I'm gonna ask you to sit for a minute reflecting on how this painting and what you've learned about it can help you grow in your love for God or in your love for your neighbor. And there's a little space on the back of the, the interpretation handout that gives a few prompts for things that you might think about in terms of doxology, confession, lament, curiosity, things like that. So let's take a moment to just reflect, and then I'll let you go get some snacks. <laughs> let's think. Father, I thank you that you can use even something like a banal painting from the 1850s to show us something about ourselves today, um, something about who we are as humans, about the ways that we um, may try to retell stories to cast ourselves in a better light, the ways that we might not see the thing that's right in front of us, the way that we might set up false binaries, the way that we might um, anticipate, see ourselves as being saviors when really you are the only one who can save. I thank you that so much can be put into something that one of your image bearers made. Thank you for that grace and for the grace that we have to see. Um, and I, I thank you for the, our time together. We pray that you would continue to bless it. Amen. <laughs>